In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing that comes to mind when we talk about the prophet Jonah is the big fish. Understandably so, it's the most memorable part of the story. VeggieTales rendition, Jonah and the big fish. It makes sense. Now, in case you need a quick recap, Jonah was called to preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh about God's judgment upon them. But unwilling to do so, he runs away, ends up in a storm, gets cast into the sea, is saved by the giant fish in whose belly he stays for three days. And so eventually, begrudgingly, he goes to preach the message that God gave him. Now, that message that Jonah is given is simply, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But he has no interest in preaching this message to his enemies. Why wouldn't he want to tell an objectively terrible nation of their impending destruction? Shouldn't he be excited to get to preach this justice to his enemies? Well, Jonah knows who God is. In our reading today, he quotes Exodus 34. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. This is how God promised to be towards his chosen people in the wilderness. But Jonah's worried that God was going to be those same things to Israel's oppressors. God's justice might not be doled out in the way that Jonah had hoped. But ever the optimist, or perhaps ever the pessimist, depending on your perspective, Jonah voices his complaint to God and then sets up a booth outside the city, waiting to see if God might smite his enemies after all. Maybe they weren't going to repent, or maybe God wouldn't hear them. Perhaps he would still get to see the city overthrown. And so he goes outside and he waits. God responds to Jonah by way of metaphor. A plant grows and it provides Jonah with shade, but then later it withers away, which frustrates Jonah. God points out that Jonah was concerned for this bush that he had nothing to do with. He didn't plant it, he didn't water it, it came and went in the night. In contrast, shouldn't God be concerned about the over 120,000 people and also many animals that live in Nineveh? It's that rhetorical question that ends our reading today, and it's actually the end of the book. Now, it feels easy to answer in the affirmative. Of course, God cares about the people and animals of Nineveh. But the implications are bigger than a simple, God loves everyone. By bringing up Jonah's lack of effort in tending and growing the plant, God is contrasting, saying, maybe he had a hand in creating and sustaining the people of Nineveh. Maybe even God was involved in creating and sustaining those people the same way he was with Israel. Now, this story and Jonah's ministry take place in a time when Israel was not in its best state. This is long after the kingdom that was once ruled by Saul and David and Solomon was divided in two. And the northern kingdom to which Jonah belonged didn't have a really good track record of following God. As a result, it was often oppressed by other nations. So you can see why it would be challenging to hear that those outside oppressors, those enemies, were created and loved by God just as Israel was, and that God's justice would be exacted in the same way with the option to repent and receive mercy as well. Jesus' parable that we heard this morning also raises some difficult questions about justice or maybe injustice. To step back for a moment, in the chapter before our reading, there were lots of questions posed to Jesus about individual responsibility to God and to others. Peter had asked Jesus, as we heard about in last week's sermon, about how many times he was supposed to forgive the one who sinned against him. 
Someone else raised a question about divorce. Jesus invited little children to come to him to say that that's how your posture should be when it comes towards God. And a rich young ruler had come up to Jesus to find out, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? In all of these examples, Jesus was giving very specific instructions on what it looks like to follow him, answering case-by-case basis. And after Jesus challenged the rich man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor, and the man walked away in despair, Peter steps up to point out to Jesus that they, the disciples, had left everything to follow him. Jesus reassures him, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Don't worry, Jesus says, God notices what you've given up. But then he tells this parable of the laborers in the vineyard all receiving the same wage. When you grow up in the church, hearing the parables all the time, they become so familiar that the details that are supposed to sound strange sound normal instead. So when we hear about this landowner who goes out to find workers in the morning and then sort of lingers around and keeps on returning many times throughout the day to hire more, we think, well, that's just how people did things back then. But a landowner wouldn't stop back in the marketplace over and over and over again. They would just hire the workers they need right away. They'd say, I need eight workers to work in my fields. I'll get eight workers. Unless, of course, the landowner doesn't need more labor, but wants more labor. Sees people and says, you, I want to hire some more people. I'd like to bring in more workers. You seem without work. I'd like to bring you in. And maybe there were reasons that those later workers were still hanging around. You know, maybe they finished up work and were back looking for more, but the landowner sort of says, why have you been sitting around here all day? Maybe they were less than ideal candidates. So no one had chosen them for work. They are the the sort of last pickings. To paint the whole picture here, we have a landowner who wants to hire lots of folks, who desires to have extra laborers, and maybe wants to include the less desirable workers in the mix. This is a landowner not motivated by bottom lines and efficiency, not motivated by his own sense of superiority, his own sense of needs, but he actually looks out and says, I want others to work. His concern is more for the laborers. His concern is his generosity. Both the reading from Jonah and our parable in Matthew tell us a lot about what God is like, the breadth of his love for others, his desire to have any and all repent and receive from him. But they also hold up a mirror to show us some potentially less than ideal things about ourselves. When the landowner distributes pay for the day, he gives to those who worked the longest exactly what they agreed to. But those who came last and only worked for an hour or two get the same. It's an overwhelming sense of generosity, but it's a problem because those who started working first didn't want to be treated equally. They didn't want to receive the same wage. They wanted to be better. It wasn't enough to receive a good thing. Someone else had to receive less. Jonah didn't want Nineveh to receive mercy like Israel did. Jonah didn't want Nineveh to have a chance to repent. Jonah wanted Israel to get exactly what they didn't deserve, but Nineveh to receive exactly what they did. Peter saw the rich young man walk away with his wealth intact, and he wanted to make sure Jesus knew, hey, hey, we gave everything we had to follow you. And although the sacrifice wouldn't be in vain, Jesus responds with this parable, almost as if to say, hey, Peter, it might just be that others receive God's generosity as well. Because what we get from God isn't a wage, it's a gift. The only wage that's offered, the only wage on the table, is what we rightfully earn, and that's of sin and death. 
That's the only thing we can work ourselves towards in God's economy. If we want anything good, it has to be received as a gift, given because God loves us, because he has overwhelming generosity. Now, of course, there's repentance involved. The parable isn't of the people who stand around in the marketplace and are handed money. The parable is, a, is of workers who respond to the landowner. This is not an economics lesson. This is a parable. God's justice isn't displayed by pretending as if sin doesn't happen. God doesn't go to Nineveh to say, don't worry, you're terrible, but I don't mind. And even on this side of the cross, there's still a need to turn from sin and be faithful to Christ. It's what we remind ourselves every Ash Wednesday. It's not cheap grace. But yet, how easy is it to think to ourselves, well, those who don't do quite as much as I do, those who don't work as hard as I work, or those who are more notorious sinners than I am, they don't deserve God's favor, or at least not as much as I do. I should get a little bit more favor. That's how legalism creeps in. We want God to operate in such a way that we can maintain control of the outcomes. Tell us how the game is played, we say, and we'll take it from here. We're like a student who spends all their time working and studying to pass a test and misses the chance to receive an education. I can't tell you how many times hands are raised in classrooms by me included during my education years. Will this be on the test? Who cares about learning this? Well, professor, I don't care what you have to say to me that might benefit me at all. Am I going to be tested on this or not? If not, forget about it. I don't care about an education. It's not a condemnation of students. It's a recognition of our behaviors. But not only do we want to pass the test, we want to know that our good scores make us better than others. God, not only do we want to know the test, post the results later. I want to know where I fall on the list. Aside from my own <laughs> admission here of my, my lack of studiousness, I can give you an example of where this shows up in my own life. Over the course of the last 13 years, I've devoted too much of my own sense of self into how much better All Souls is when I compare it to other churches. Look at how smart we are. Look at how gorgeous our worship space is. And this used to be a plain white box. Look at how the students who come into my youth ministry were already asking deep questions about scripture because of how they were formed in our children's ministry. And then look at my youth ministry some more. They have all the right theology for their age. None of them even know what the rapture is. Look at our church library. We have all of Karl Barth's church dogmatics. Who cares if anyone's actually read it or checked out the books? We're the kind of place that has those books on our shelves. And instead of thanking God for the blessings I've received while serving in this church among these people, at least part of my identity was built on a belief that those blessings made this place, and by extension me, superior to my friends in ministry. Other churches were not quite as smart or artistic or as thoughtful as we are. That may not be true of you, but I confess that it is sometimes true of me. And the thing that convicts me this morning is not just that God loves those people we think he doesn't, or that he has grace on the people we think don't deserve it, but that my own pride will get in the way of me celebrating that love and grace, desiring it for others. It's a toxic way to exist. May God have mercy on those of us tempted to distort his blessings into that kind of thinking. Well, the antidote to that poison is to grow in grace, to ask God for humility and separate our own personal success from the kingdom of God. Paul expresses that here in the beginning of his letter to the Philippians. He's writing from prison, trying to encourage the church in Philippi to change their perspective on what his imprisonment actually means. He's able to have enough distance on his relationship to the kingdom of God to be able to look at it and say, 
even if I'm potentially executed at the hands of Rome, it's not a failure. For me to die is to be with Christ. For Paul, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and whatever happens to him personally could never undo that reality. Even while he's under the grip of Rome, who would claim to actually be Lord, Paul can see that Jesus is true king, and all things are subject to him. But, he says, if he's pressed and has to think of which is better, he still picks living. <laughs> Maybe because, of course, he's not as committed in his heart as he would think. But let's, let's take Paul at his word. He says continuing to live means that he can continue to serve the Philippians. It means continued growth for them. That growth, of course, isn't just comfort. Paul knows this firsthand. He's writing from prison, and he had gone through innumerable trials for the sake of Christ. He's writing to encourage the Philippians for when they go through the same. But at the end of the day, Paul has the attitude towards his church in Philippi that Jonah should have had towards the Assyrians, and the early laborers should have had towards their 11th hour co-workers, a desire to celebrate what God did for them and continues to do for them. Paul's desire is to join and boast with the Philippians about what Jesus had done. Paul's desire is to celebrate God's mercy wherever it finds its home. In a sense, that's what we did this morning. At the 9 o'clock service, we baptized Michael so that we might celebrate that God was adding one more to our number, those who have received grace from God through Christ. And of course, it's easy for us to celebrate Michael's baptism. We love him and care for him. It's harder when that happens with someone maybe we don't love and care for quite as much. The goal, though, is for all of us the same, that Michael and all of us would grow in our love for God and for others so that we long to see others receive that grace as well, not to boast in our own status, but to boast in the God who loves us, to boast in Jesus. So how does God execute his justice, and how are we to respond? Well, God never ignores sin, but he's ready to offer grace to any who are willing to turn to him. We're called to celebrate when others receive that grace, and through it all to look to Christ to shape our understanding of what is good. May God give us humble and generous hearts, ready to repent when we are called to like the people of Nineveh, and ready to praise him when others do the same. May God give us those hearts and give us that love for others. Amen.